listening to the news on RTHK. An international station for an international city. This is Radio 3. Good morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong. This is Money Talk on Radio 3 on Monday the 25th of April. Peter Lewis here with the latest business and finance headlines. Shanghai has escalated its lockdown restrictions as it fails to achieve societal zero COVID, with the citywide lockdown entering its fifth week. Over the weekend, health officials reported that daily new infections were above 20,000 once again following five days of declines. On Friday, the municipal government launched nine new measures in an attempt to reach zero community transmission. And yesterday, local officials fenced off apartment building entrances with mesh barriers to further restrict movement in the city. The Hong Kong government said on Friday that non-SAR residents will be allowed to fly into the city from overseas once again from May the 1st. And it will also relax rules that lead to flight suspensions. Inflation in Hong Kong picked up in March, with overall consumer prices rising 1.7% year-on-year. That compares with an average increase of 1.4% over the first two months of the year. Basic food prices saw the largest increase year-on-year at 7.6%. And U.S. business activity slowed in April as soaring costs for raw materials, fuel and labour pushed input prices to a record high. S&P Global said its flash U.S. composite PMI output index fell to 55.1 this month from 57.7 in March. Service sector firms registered the fastest rise in cost burdens since October 2009 when data collection began. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Sunil Kashap at FinMet and Andrew Sullivan at Outset Global with a view from mainland China, Zhen Wu, chairman of Zhenwang Bao. Money Talk U.S. stocks plunged on Friday as investors weighed up the likelihood of a more aggressive pace of monetary tightening from the Fed and the European Central Bank. The S&P 500 index registered its biggest one-day loss in seven weeks, falling 2.8% to 4,272. The Dow lost 981 points, ending the day at 33,811. The Nasdaq Composite dropped 2.6% to 12,839, taking its losses for the week to 3.8%. The CBOE's VIX Volatility Index surged over 24% to a one-month high of 28.21. In Europe, the Regional Stock 600 Index dropped 1.8%. London's FTSE 100 tumbled 1.4%. Chinese markets plunged at the open on Friday following a speech from President Xi Jinping at the Bao Forum the previous day where he said that China's zero-Covid strategy would continue. But the national team stepped in to save the day. Stocks staged a sharp rebound after the nation's securities regulator urged domestic banks and insurers to support the stock market. And in conjunction with that, state media ran a series of articles projecting confidence in the economy and markets. The Shanghai Composite rebounded from losses of 1%, ending 0.2% higher at 3,087, but it was down almost 4% on the week. 
In Hong Kong, the Hang Seng Index recovered from losses of 2.4% to close 44 points or 0.2% lower at a five-week low of 20,639. Benchmark Index closed lower every day last week, leaving it with a loss of 4.1% over the five days, and it's lost almost 12% for the year so far. The Hang Seng Tech Index was down 7.4% on the week, taking its losses for 2022 so far to 29.4%. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil was down 4.5% over the week, and it starts a new week, trading at $105.57 a barrel. Copper fell 3% over the five days. Gold is trading at $1,932 an ounce. The yield on the 10-year U.S. Treasury note was steady at 2.90%, close to its highest level since 2018. And a lot going on in the currency markets. The U.S. dollar continued to surge higher last week, its third weekly gain in a row, to its highest level since May 2020 against a basket of currencies. The euro has moved higher this morning after Emmanuel Macron won a second term as French president. The euro is trading at $1.8.1 cents. The Japanese yen slumped 1.7% last week to a 20-year low of 128 and three quarters versus the dollar. The British pound has sunk to the weakest level since late 2020, following weak retail sales figures. Consumption and business activity in the UK are cooling rapidly, sending the pound 1.5% lower on Friday to $1.28.5. And against the local currency, the pound is worth $10.07. It was also a bad week for the Chinese yuan, which slid by the most against the US dollar in almost three years. Offshore yuan closed at 6.501, down 2% over the week. That's its biggest weekly loss since August 2019. And the offshore yuan this morning is at 6.53 and a third versus the dollar. That's its weakest level in a year. And Bitcoin, that was down 2% over the week at $39,400. Yep, $39,400. Let's take a look at how how Asian stock markets are opening up this morning. First of all, in Australia, the SX200 is down about 1.6% not long after the open. The Nikkei 225 in Japan is off over 2%. The Cosby is down 1.2% in South Korea and looks like another bad day for the Hang Seng. Uh, Markets indicating a loss of about 500 points for the Hang Seng at the open later on this morning. It's coming up to 8.10. Let's go and welcome our guests in our Queensway studio. We have with us Andrew Sullivan, Managing Director at Outset Global. Morning, Andrew. Good morning. And also with us Sunil Kashap, Director at FinMet. Morning, morning Sunil. Morning. Um, we've just done the rundown of the markets. I want to start just with some thoughts on the bond markets. Uh, St. Louis Prez, Fed President James Bullard said on Friday, the bond market isn't, isn't looking like a very safe place to be um, at the moment. Maybe, maybe that's uh, a bit of an understatement. Considering U.S. Treasuries are down eight percent so far this year, that's the worst fall since uh, worst start to a year since 1973. Um, what what are your thoughts on um, the significance of what we're seeing going on in the bond markets at the moment? Well, I think it's it's a reflection of the fact that the bond market had been resisting 
um, the uh, coming to coming to terms with the facts that the uh, inflation is around uh, and it's around to stay. Uh, and also, I think um, it was maybe there were certain participants who were not sure whether the Fed is going to act aggressively. What we've seen over the last couple of weeks um, is with statements coming out of the Fed, uh, the bond market has sort of corrected its view, and that's why you've seen declining bond prices and yields going up to higher levels. Does the, the Fed know where it wants interest rates to be compared to inflation? I, I think what the Fed is really trying to say is that we want inflation down, and mm. we will do whatever it, what, whatever it takes to at least uh, plateau inflation initially and start seeing some kind of declines later on. That's what their biggest um, sort of direction has been, saying it will do what it takes. Uh, and I think that's something that the, the, the market was waiting for the Fed to say. And finally, on Friday, uh, the Fed chairman actually said that, essentially. Mm. Andrew, they're, they're now talking about, or well, some of the members on the FOMC anyway, talking about 75 basis points rate increases. Uh, are markets prepared for this? Are investors prepared for this? Well, I think if you remember that uh, Bullard said uh, you know, a few months ago 50 basis points and uh, initially you had that sort of knee-jerk reaction but then gradually the market came round to thinking okay, 50 basis points is okay. Now he's upped it to 75. <laughs> it just gives them more scope and, and I think having pre-warned the market um, again, makes it more possible. And of course, you've got to remember that uh, Powell said last week that he wanted to front load these rates. They need to get that cushion up in case that, uh, you know, once they've what, seemingly cured inflation or they see a, a slowdown in the economy, they've got room to be able to lower rates again. And I think that's an important part of their thinking. I mean, the key thing is Fed policy. I mean, Fed policy has always been important, but it really matters now, doesn't it? And the question on everyone's minds is, just how far uh, are interest rates going? No, we don't seem to know the answer. Well, I think we, you know, the trend is going to be up, but the reality is that you know, for, for many years we've we've had central government policies uh, and and central banks, you know, really controlling what was happening and and being able to do so uh, a low inflation rate. But all of that has changed now, you know, partly because of COVID, partly because of the war, and and, and that's now going to be the new reality. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so the difficult part now is to balance growth uh, versus the fight for inflation. Right? You don't want to have a situation where you increase interest rates too fast, looking at inflation rates, and then suddenly find a problem on the growth side. Mm. So I think that's something that's going to be quite challenging for them. But um, has the Fed lost control of inflation? Well, I don't think any government or bank can really control inflation. That's much more to do with market forces. Um, they have to react to, to what they see. I mean, this started, a lot of this started because of uh, supply constraints. And, and that's something that the banks have to react to. Mm. Yeah, and uh, there's another thing also, I think. I think, you know, what happens is typically you find inflation and then the biggest challenge becomes inflation expectations. I think that's the biggest challenge for them is that there's generally a widespread sort of expectation that inflation will continue to be high. And what you're seeing is uh, you know, everyone's increasing their prices in anticipation of inflation. So even if they don't see input cost increase or they see a 5% input increase, uh, input cost increase, they increase their prices, output prices by 10% because they say, oh, I've got to factor in further increases coming in. That creates a self-perpetuating kind of a... Uh, cycle where 
prices keep going up. And, and is that because we're, we're seeing price movements in things that really matter, that consumers can't cut back on? Food, energy, fuel, that sort of anchors the inflation expectations even more, doesn't it? Well, yes. I mean, at the end of the day, it's about people's wages. Uh, and that's what the Fed really needs to try and try and control. Um, but of course, if you think food's going up or you're seeing that the food is going up or cost of running your car is going up, then when it comes round to your, your wage negotiation, you're going to want to factor in not only the loss that you've already seen because of wages going up or prices going up, but you want to factor in an added bonus so that in the next 12 months you're cushioned. So that, that you know, then becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, unfortunately. Now, we're also seeing some big moves in the currency markets out here. Uh, we've seen the biggest slide in the renminbi against the US dollar in three years. Do you think the PBOC is happy to let the currency slide? Are there some benefits from that for it? Well, I think in the short term, yes. Um, obviously, they've got, they're, they're looking at how do they support their market. They're locked down through COVID, um, but they want to try and make their, their exports as attractive as possible. Uh, and they've got scope to do that. What do you think, Sunil? Do you, yeah. There's, there's going to be more pressure, isn't there, on the URN if, um, if USC yields rise and also if the Japanese yen continues to tumble? Yeah, I, I think in general the, the PBOC would like to see uh, uh, the currency weaker because it helps exports, as Andrew said. Uh, the one thing that they're always worried about is sudden moves. Right. Mm -hmm. They want to create uh, an ambience of uh, stability, an uh, environment of stability. So they'd like to have the decline in the currency take place more gradually than it's happened in the last week or so. Mm -hmm. So you may see them intervening and trying to uh, stop that uh, sudden decline. But uh, I think a gradual decline is something that will work in their favor. And you've got to remember that it's it's a closed economy, so they're not as worried as other countries would be about funds flowing out from the country. So it, it's very much more linked to you know, export policy. Well, what about the Japanese yen then? That's the 20-year low now. Is that starting to get disorderly as well? You notice the Bank of Japan's uh, Governor Haruhiko Kuroda wanted to try and organise some sort of currency intervention uh, with the US Treasury, but uh, that, that seemed to have got rebuffed. Well, they're always going to have a problem there because, you know, they've, they're maintaining this policy that they've maintained for many years. The, the central bank's not looking to change uh, and the markets are reacting to that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, their bond yields are, are zero. Um, they were negative for some time, but they're zero long-term uh, bond rates. And then when you compare them with the U.S. Uh, Treasury rates of 3%, that, that's a dramatic interest rate mm. differential. So that's why you see the market... Uh, shorting the yen. So something's got to give there, hasn't it? Either the Bank of Japan's going to be forced to abandon this yield curve control and rates are going to go up, or if it tries to stick with it, uh, the yen's just going to go even lower. Yeah, in the past what they've done is intervene in the markets. So I think that's what the market is waiting for. It's mm. Some large-scale intervention, maybe along with the Fed, to try and uh, to stop out some of the shorts. Although you, you've got to say at the end of the day, though, that the policy they're maintaining, you know, keeping rates low to support the companies is really not working because these are cash rich companies in Japan. Mm. They don't they're not taking loans regardless of whatever the interest rate is. Uh, and yet it's hurting their savers. And, and I think, you know, realistically, they should look at changing the policy. But they seem to be just wedded to this one idea uh, and unchanging in it. Well, okay, let me get your thoughts on stocks as well, then. Uh, what's a sharp rise in US interest rates going to do for Hong Kong? 
Well, I think you're going to see people look at uh, real assets again. Uh, those always perform well with rising interest rates and, and good companies. Uh, and there are a number of those that have good brand names. Uh, they have low debt. A lot of Asian companies have low debt. Uh, and that's going to put them in a very ad advantageous position going forward. Yeah, but on the other hand, I think one of the challenges is going to be mortgage rates, right? I think so. Uh, when you talk about real assets, people typically in Hong Kong think about property. I think that's going to be uh, a little bit of a stretch because, you know, for so long uh, we've seen interest rates and people borrow on the basis of high bar. So one month high bar has been below 1% for so long. So I think you're going to find a situation where th because the Hong Kong dollar is pegged to the US dollar, the local currency interest rates will go up and that will get reflected into mortgage costs and that will have an impact in terms of property prices. It's coming at a bad time though, isn't it? Because we're suffering a sharp economic slowdown. The IMF in its uh, latest economic forecast projects just half a percent growth for Hong Kong. Yeah, and that's the you can see that reflected in the currency, right? The currency is close to the upper band. Uh, 7.85. It's been creeping up slowly over the last few weeks. Mm. Um, so the challenge for the HKMA is going to be uh, whether they should try and intervene. Um, and, you know, they're trying to resist increasing its interest rates, but ultimately, because the currency is pegged, they have to increase interest rates. So it's going to be an interesting play over the next few weeks to see how HKMA uh, tries to, you know, react to lower growth rates but higher interest rates so and currency pegs. So that's going to be an interesting play. And, of course, we've, we're, we're linked with the COVID restrictions here, which, again, is putting pressure on businesses. You know, fund managers can't travel easily to come and see companies, uh, and that will put pressure on a number of the stocks as well. And what about on the mainland? Mainland Chinese equities have lost about $2.7 trillion of market value this year. On Friday, we had the stock market regulator stepping in, calling for domestic funds and insurance companies to invest in the market. I've s said several times on this program what I think about that, that you know, the, it seems that, that that's not the job of regulators, is it, to tell people when and when not to invest. They're supposed to be a neutral arbiter of the markets, but nevertheless, they're doing it. Does it make a difference? I think it, it creates a false sense of security, to be honest with you. Um, you're manipulating a market, and at some time in the future, it will create to uh, to reflect the realities. Yeah, I mean, the, the hope uh, with which this is being done is that, you know, if there's a, uh, there's a short-term shock, you try to create confidence in the market, and then the retail investors will come back in. I think right now the sentiment is so negative, uh, even amongst the, the retail investors, you know, they, they're, tack they're tracking so many other issues right now compared to trying to invest in shares. So that's so you're not going to see the follow-through action in terms of retail investors coming in s and supporting the market. I think you've also got that element of the, you know, the, the boy that cried wolf. The trouble is the regulator has come in so many times and said, we're going to do something, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. Uh, that you know, investors now, they had just haven't seen that action. Mm. Um, and, and hence, every time the regulator comes out and says something, everybody takes that with more than a pinch of salt. Is, is the regulator damaging its credibility here by doing this? I mean, it, it's way out over its skis, isn't it? It's, as I say, it's not the job of the regulator in any market to be telling institutions whether or not to invest. 
Uh, well, I mean, one of the things they can do, and they have done in the past, is allow them to invest more in equities. But you get to a point where that is no longer a feasible policy. Mm -hmm. um, they say they're going to you know, change interest rates or help this sector or help that sector. But in, unless we actually see them doing that, then you know, investors are going to be very sceptical about anything the regulator says. Does it really change people's minds, though, anyway? Do, do people really listen and say, oh, yeah, well, uh, the regulator says we should invest, so previously I was negative on the market, now I'm going to be more positive? Does it really happen like that? Yeah, I, I think actions speak more than words. So, mm. the, you know, the fact is that the, the, the policy of common prosperity is getting reflected into actions that the government has taken in the property sector, in the technology sector, in the education sector, and investors see that. So, you know, just some uh, a couple of uh, officials saying something doesn't matter as much as what they're actually what the investors are seeing in terms of actions that the government has been taking, which has been negative for stocks. I think if, you know if you look at Evergrande, you know the the, the whole company structure there and, and what's happening has really removed a lot of people's confidence in property mm. uh, and that has been a mainstay of the Chinese economy for many years so you know rebuilding that confidence you know people are buying flats off the plan that aren't going to be livable and for the next couple of years if they lose that confidence that that, that that's a big you know cash flow problem for the developers that they can't sell property if the developers can't sell property the local governments can't sell land if the local governments can't sell land they can't pay for the infrastructure it, it, and it becomes a you know a self-fulfilling prophecy that everything slows down dramatically um, and that's causing the central government a big problem what would you think it would take to sort of engineer a change in sentiment towards chinese equities well i think you know a, a, a change in policy. I mean, the growth, the trouble that investors have is that, you know, common prosperity and, and the crackdown on the, uh, the e-commerce names really shows you that the government is not concerned about economic growth and, and, and rewarding investors. Mm. There's going to be no more super profits. It, it's all going to be shared and investors can go to other countries. Yeah, and, and, and the real point right now is 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 this trade-off versus zero COVID uh, in in zero COVID versus economic growth I think that's what you know the government can if the government can clearly signal that they're willing to tilt the balance more in favor of economic growth then you may see some some confidence coming back uh, but right now it's very clear that uh, the government views the health risks to be far more than uh, the economic um, risks, and so that's why you, you're seeing shares sold off. Okay, well, thank you both for your thoughts there. Have a good week. That's Sunil Kashap, director at FinMet, Andrew Sullivan, managing director at Outset Global. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio Three. The time's 8.25. On the phone from Beijing is Yan'an Wu, Chairman of Xinguang Bao. Morning, Yan'an. Good morning, Peter. How are you this morning? I'm very well, thank you. Let me ask you, um, how are things in, in Beijing? Obviously, we know a lot about the, uh, the Shanghai uh, lockdowns, but we're hearing things now that uh, COVID is already also spreading now in Beijing, and you're starting to feel some lockdowns there. What, what's the latest there? Yeah, indeed. Uh, I'm actually uh, sitting in my office right now. The uh, studies from this uh, week, uh, the uh, Chaoyang district uh, 
asking every uh, building, the office building, to have the COVID test, you know, the uh, to enter the building. So this is something starting uh, from last night. Some of the uh, uh, WalMarts and uh, some of the super store chain has a lot of consumers uh, rushing for goods just in case uh, something happened similar to Shanghai for the past month. Well, we're in now the fifth week of lockdowns in Shanghai. There doesn't seem to be an end uh, coming. What, what's it going to take uh, to, to get the city out of this malaise? Yeah, it, it, I think the sentiment in Shanghai is uh, uh, rather uh, a little bit uh, passive right now. So uh, I think uh, the uh, government objective, of course, is to try to reduce the so, so-called social uh the COVID uh, number to zero uh, and uh, let the, those uh, who have the COVID uh, infected to move to the isolated uh, areas. Uh, but so far, I think uh, the COVID-19, the complexity is the R0 is larger than 10. So this, the effect of spreading is, very, is faster than people anticipated. So this gives some uncertainty to how long the Shanghai is still going to in this isolated situation. And um, in economically, I affect the logistics, especially in Shanghai and Jiangsu, the surrounding province. So because the uh, Jiangsu and Zhejiang province, Shanghai, the center of the whole logistics of mm. uh, productive chain in, in, in national economy. Yeah. Mm. And it's the economic numbers that are coming out of Shanghai. We had an economic official say Shang- Shanghai's industrial output fell 7.5% in March and uh, first quarter retail sales uh, were 3.8% lower, but in March, retail sales plunged almost 19%. It's having a big economic impact, isn't it? Yeah, I think the economic numbers in the March actually is showing some uh, downtrend uh, already. Uh, the the PMI number, manufacturing PM number, is 495 so it's the the first time within the past five months the below the ex- uh, extension line. Mm-hmm. And the Taishin service PMI actually is uh, already uh, you know, the lowest point uh, since March uh, 2020 uh, at uh, 42.0. Mm-hmm. So both manufacturing and service are uh, you know, down uh, for since March already. And, and it's and affecting the, the market. The Mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry, I, I have to ask quickly because we're, we're running out of time. It's also affecting yeah. the markets as well. We have the regulator calling for investment funds and insurance companies to invest in the markets. What, what's it going to take yeah. to get confidence in the stock market back up again? Yeah, I heard your conversation with that again. Uh, the other guest. It's interesting this time the CSRC calls uh, the uh, institutional investor, especially the social security investor and the bank and the insurance uh, institutions uh, rather than public mutual funds or private hedge funds in 2018 in a similar meeting. And so this shows the CSRC wants the long-term institution or capital enter the market to mm-hmm. have the confidence in the Asian market. And uh, in the same time, the uh, the government actually released the, the, the individual uh, pension accounts are uh, going to be uh, inst- institutionalized uh, this, starting from this year, and everyone has uh, this uh, 12,000 RMB uh, quote 
quota for the personal individual accounts. Uh, so it's different like uh, the IRA in U.S. or RSP in Canada. So hopefully this long-term uh, pension fund can become the stabilizing force in Asia market. But of course, that cannot be done overnight. The market is driven by the sentiment right now. And because the, gov- the one side is the economy, the other side is the gov- market concern about a reverse back to the planned economy rather than market economy. So this shows some confusion in the market and concern. But the policy makers, of course, want to make sure the market is still confident in the government, the China economy is still going to a market economy. Okay, Yanem. Well, thank you very much indeed for your thoughts there. That's Yanem Wu, chairman of Zhenrong Bao up in Beijing. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Around Asia Pacific markets, I did say Australia earlier was down. In fact, it's not down at all. It's closed for the Anzac holiday, so nothing going on there. But stocks in Japan are down a lot. Uh, the Nikkei 225 in Japan off 1.7%. The Cosby in South Korea down about 1.1%. And the slide in local Hong Kong stocks looks set to continue this morning. Futures markets pointing to a decline of 500 points for the Hang Seng Index at the open. Coming up after the news, next on Radio 3, COVID updates. Jim Gordon, and Mike Rouse will be bringing you that. The weather forecast... Sunny periods, isolated showers. Uh, it is going to be hot. The maximum temperature around 31 degrees. And the outlook is it to remain hot with sunny periods. One or two showers in the next few days. Temperature right now is 27 degrees and it's 82% relative humidity. The time's 8.32. Here's Andrew Shorsky with the half-hour news. Thank you, Peter. The government says it's banning Qatar Airways from operating a flight from Doha to Hong Kong after five passengers tested positive for COVID. It says the patients flew in Saturday on QR-818. The ban will last until May 1st. Meanwhile, health officials have reported 429 new COVID infections, almost 100 fewer than the previous day. Epidemiologist Benjamin Cowling says he sees no justification for Hong Kong to maintain restrictions on people arriving in the SAR. From Sunday, fully vaccinated non-residents will be able to fly in as long as they have a negative PCR test. The flight suspension rule will also be eased, meaning flights will be banned for five days if they bring in five or more infected passengers, or 5% of the flight. Professor Cowling from the University of Hong Kong School of Public Health says these rules won't stop new variants entering the community. The one thing I've heard about as a reason for keeping travel measures in place is the idea of keeping maybe new variants out of Hong Kong. We've had BA2, there's now BA4, BA5 in some other parts of the world. Maybe there'll be something else in the future. But we have to recognize that the travel restrictions won't stop those new variants from getting into Hong Kong. Look at what happened with the fifth wave. BA2 got into the city pretty quickly and it wasn't even the first opportunity that it had so in my opinion actually travel restrictions could be relaxed at any time i don't think there's any justification for them at present overseas the french president emmanuel macron has said he will be a president for everyone after he was re-elected for a second term in office in his victory speech to crowds gathered at the eiffel, Terra, eiffel tower in paris he acknowledged that many people had abstained or had voted for him only to block his far-right rival marine le pen he also acknowledged those who had voted against him. He spoke through a translator. Et je sais que pour nombre de nos compatriotes 
and I know that for many of our fellow citizens droite, who today chose to vote for right, I know that they are angry and that's what led them to vote for that manifesto and of course we need to find a response to that and that will be my responsibility as well as the responsibility of the people around me. Marine Le Pen has admitted defeat but said her party standing had sent a strong message to the world that the French wanted a different future. Je n'ai aujourd'hui aucun ressentiment ni rancœur. I have no resentment today, no rancor. We have been buried a thousand times, and a thousand times history has proved wrong what they predicted or hoped for, our disappearance. Regarding this defeat, I cannot help but feel a form of hope. 